Let's take time as we customarily do before the sermon and pray once more. Father in heaven, the text in your word that we have before us this morning is a text, another text in your word that takes a mirror to us and shows us ourselves, uh, particularly the human tendency to be faithless. And yet at the same time, Lord, it shows us your amazing grace and mercy and tenderness and goodness. I pray, Lord, especially that you would reveal yourself during this time in the word, uh, that, Lord, we would not leave this place unchanged, uh, but changed by your grace and by what you have to say to us. So come, Lord, uh, be with us, attend your word, uh, speak to our minds and hearts as our prayer in the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. When I was a little kid... I wanted to be like my older brother, Ross, in many ways. One of the things that Ross got into was building plastic models. So cars and trucks and airplanes and aircraft carriers and the like. And he was good at building models. He would take the box, still wrapped in shrink wrap, and he would carefully open the box and then he would take an exacto blade and very meticulously cut each plastic part off of its frame. And then he would take time to paint the parts that needed to be painted and let them dry overnight very patiently. And then he would glue them together the following day. And then the decals would go on. And I tell you, by the time my brother Ross's models were completed and sitting up on his shelf, They were really a thing to behold, carefully put together and finely detailed. On the other hand, my attempts at building models were another story. Uh, Perhaps you can chalk it up to the fact that I am four years younger than my older brother, but I just didn't have the patience for model building. See, I wanted to paint and glue and finish the model all on the same day. I wanted to rush the process to get to the final result. And as a consequence, my hastily assembled uh, finished models tended to look quite sloppy and quite inferior. It's good to to, uh, to come out with this. It helps. It's therapeutic. (laughs) The point is, my impatience resulted in a mess. Well, in the next chapter of the story of Abraham, we have a situation where impatience results in a mess. The impatience of Abram and his wife Sarai, and we should note their impatience is with God, who still has not provided the baby boy that he had promised them. This impatience on the part of Abram and Sarai leads them to hatch a plan of their own human devising to get a son, to rush that process along, and the result is nothing less than a big, giant mess. So let's go to the text now, to Genesis 16, to see the mess but also to see how God 
shines in goodness and in glory, even in the midst of the messes that are made by his human creatures. Genesis 16 begins with a comment from the narrator of Genesis, and I hope you have a Bible open. The narrator says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So there's the problem. Despite God's promise of offspring, a promise that was hinted first in Genesis 12, verse 2, and then really explicitly it was stated in Genesis 15, it hadn't happened. There still was no biological son for Abram. The narrator continues, Sarai had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. This person named Hagar was the personal assistant of Sarai. In this ancient Near Eastern society, sometimes women of means, like Sarai, would employ personal maidservants, and Hagar was Sarai's personal maidservant. Now, it's interesting. Back in chapter 12, when Pharaoh, we remember the story, when Pharaoh had evicted Abram out of Egypt uh, after that really disastrous trip that Abram had taken down to Egypt, Pharaoh at that point had sent Abram away with that gift package. Remember that? Pharaoh's gift package had included female servants according to Genesis 12:16, So it's highly likely that Hagar had been part of that gift package. She had most likely been given to Abram by Pharaoh. So that Abram's failure in Egypt in Genesis chapter 12 will now be connected by the person of Hagar, and in the person of Hagar it will be connected, to Abram's failure of faith here in Genesis 16. Let's go forward in the story to verse 2. And Sarai, and we should note that Sarai is about 75 years old at this point in the story, Sarai said to Abram, who is now 85 years old, Sarai said, Behold, now Yahweh, the Lord, has prevented me from bearing children. Now we notice here that Sarai engages in some theological interpretation, doesn't she? Sarai is very sure here that it was God's power that had worked to restrain her from bearing children. She continues talking to Abram and she says, Go in, in the ESV, go in to my servant, or go into Hagar, we could translate it, have intercourse with Hagar, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now friends, as we said off the top, in this episode of the Abraham story, Sarai and Abram act out of their impatience with God. They act in significant faithlessness. Despite having God's promise of a son already before them. 
So on the theological level, on the faith level, when Sarai asks Abram in this verse to try, go try, produce a son with Hagar, Sarai here is really out to lunch on the faith level, on the theological level. She's off the rails where trusting God is concerned. However, purely at the level, listen, purely at the level of human custom, or we might say at the level of the common social practices in the society in which Abram and Sarai lived, Sarai's suggestion to Abram here in verse 2 was certainly not unconventional, nor was it improper at that level. Alan Ross is helpful here when he says this. He says, legal customs of the day made it clear that a barren wife could give her maid to the husband as a wife and that a son born of that union could be the heir if the husband ever declared him to be so. Sarai's plan then was unobjectionable, unobjectionable from the standpoint of custom and law in the ancient Near East. So we can't fault Sarah at the level of legal custom as she suggests to Abram that he try making a baby with Hagar. However, as we've said, at the level of faith, at the level of trusting God for a baby, Sarai and Abram with her can be criticized. Their impatience with God is about to produce a real mess. Are you impatient with God this morning? The end of verse 2 tells us that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, Abram had not listened to the voice of God in chapter 12 when he'd taken that unauthorized trip down to Egypt to escape the famine. Now, here in chapter 16, Abram is listening to the wrong voice again in the matter of how he will acquire offspring, and trouble will follow. Watch verse 3 now. So after Abram had lived how many years? Ten years in the land of Canaan. We'll come back to that. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, I want us to really take stock of verses 2 and 3 here. Let's think about this. There are some interesting and tragic things going on here. First of all, notice that in this, notice this carefully, in this whole interaction between Sarai and Abram, not once do either of them call Hagar by her name. The narrator calls Hagar by name in verse 3, but Sarai and Abram do not. Sarai uses the phrase, my servant, and she uses the word her when she's referring to Hagar. There is a sort of depersonalization of Hagar here. And in verse 3, notice, Sarai takes Hagar and gives 
Hagar to Abram, but Hagar herself has no say in any of this. We have to consider Hagar's situation here. Hagar is a foreigner to Abram and Sarai. She is an Egyptian. And Hagar is a servant. Hagar, in this situation, in this culture in which she finds herself, has no rights. She has no voice. She has no power. And the covenant people of God are treating her terribly here. Don't miss this. Abram and Sarai, the covenant people of God, are treating Hagar in a deplorable way here. The church people are treating an outsider terribly. It's awful quiet in here. The second thing to notice in verses 2 and 3, which is certainly connected, I think, directly, it's connected directly to that deplorable treatment that Abram and Sarai are giving Hagar is, is this fact, that in verses 2 and 3, and look at the text with me, in verses 2 and 3, the writer of Genesis, Moses, is going out of his way here to connect these events with the fall of humankind in Genesis chapter 3. What do I mean? Well, consider that in Genesis chapter 3, what do we have there? We have a woman, a wife, who seeks good outside of God. The woman Eve sought to be wise apart from God. Here in Genesis 16, we have a woman, a wife, who is seeking good also outside of God. Sarai is seeking blessing. She's seeking a child outside of God, outside the bounds of his word and his promise. And just as Eve had given fruit to her husband, Genesis 3, so now Sarai gives Hagar to her husband. And just as Adam had accepted Eve's offer with serious consequences that then followed, now Abram will accept Sarai's offer and serious consequences will follow. And even at the level of language, friends, it becomes quite clear that verses 2 and 3 here are meant to recall Genesis 3. Watch this. In Genesis 16:2, we have the phrase, And Sarai said, Just as in Genesis 3-2, we have the phrase, and the woman said. In Genesis 16-2, we have the phrase, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Just as in Genesis 3-17, we have the phrase, you, Adam, have listened to the voice of your wife. In Genesis 16-3, we have Sarai taking and giving Hagar to Abram. Notice those verbs, taking and giving. Just as in Genesis 3.6, we have Eve taking and giving forbidden fruit to Adam. So what's the upshot of all this? The upshot is that here in Genesis 6.16, we have a new fall of humankind 
that is being presented to us. Adam and Eve had not been satisfied with God and with his ways, and they had sought their good outside of God. Now Sarai and Abram are repeating the same pattern. Well, let's you and I step back from the narrative for a moment. And let's just try to put ourselves in the shoes of Abram and Sarai. You ready to do that just for a moment? Going back to verse 3. Verse 3 tells us that it's been 10 years now since Abram had come to Canaan. 10 years had passed. And Abram is now 85 years old, as we said, and Sarai is 75. They are beyond childbearing age. And as of yet, there had been no promised child despite God's promise. All the evidence seemed to argue against God's promise materializing and coming to pass. Abram and Sarai are weary of waiting. Are you weary of waiting for something this morning? Weary of waiting, so they agree here God needs a little human intervention. We need to help God along in this promise a little bit. Friend, the question is, what would you have done? What would I have done in in such a situation? Would we be much different than Abram and Sarai? I think one of the main pillars in this text, or one of the main lessons that this text is trying to teach us, is, listen, that faith in God is not easy, but faith in God must prevail. We need to say that again. Somebody here needs to hear it. Faith in God is not easy, but faith in God must prevail. Prevail. Sometimes there will be seasons in your life when all the evidence, all the evidence seems to argue against you keeping your faith in God alive. Sometimes all the data around you will scream at you to abandon faith in God. Sometimes you may find yourself thinking, God is so inappropriately slow and sluggish in my situation. I can't wait any longer. Now I have to take matters into my own hands. Have you been there? Some of you are there right now. What do we do when God seems so slow and we are starting to panic? Answer, we turn to a sober examination of our own motives, our own desires, our obedience. We invite God to search our hearts. And whether we come out of such an examination clean or dirty... We continue to wait on God and his timing. We must continue to wait on the sovereign of the universe and his perfect, always perfect timing. 
And in the process, we concede to God and to ourselves, we say, Lord, faith is not easy. God understands. Walter Brueggemann says, and I love this, he says, what faith calls for is a persistence which is against common sense. Did you hear that? What faith in God sometimes calls for is a persistence which is against common sense. We love common sense. A persistence which is against common sense. He says, faith calls for believing in a gift from God which none of the present data can substantiate. (laughs) Do you like that or do you hate that? Faith calls for believing in a gift from God which none of the present data can substantiate. My, My friend, God calls you today to continue to wait on him to continue to trust him despite the data. Well, in the interest of time, we have to move on now to verse 4. In verse 4, Abram, watch this, he acts on Sarai's suggestion and Hagar conceives. Now we notice here that this is a pretty clinical description of the proceedings. There's no record of emotion or romance in this affair. It's just Abram goes to Hagar, Hagar conceives. Just like that. It seems, doesn't it, that Hagar is very fertile. She gets pregnant in one verse. (laughs) It's very fertile. In contrast, in contrast to Sarai. The rest of verse 4 reads, When Hagar saw that she had conceived, her belly's growing, she looked with kalal in the Hebrew, with contempt, or with disdain, or with dishonor on her mistress, Sarai. Now, I'm male. I can't pretend to know exactly what's going on here, but there is some woman-to-woman conflict brewing here, right? Guys, some of us have seen this before. Women, some of you have seen it before. The pregnant servant, servant Hagar, is looking at her mistress, her employer, Sarai, with Contempt now. It could be that Hagar thinks that her pregnancy with Abram's child now makes her somewhat superior to barren Sarai. We wonder if this might be some sort of superiority complex that Hagar is now exuding in, in, in Sarai's direction. We're not told the precise nature of the contempt that Hagar shows towards Sarai, but one thing's certain here in the text. The Hebrew word, it's very interesting, the Hebrew word that's translated here as contempt is the same Hebrew word that was used back in chapter 12, verse 3, where it was translated as the word dishonor. Watch this. God had said to Abram in Genesis 12, 3, that the person who dishonors you, same word, dishonors you, I will curse. 
Now Hagar is dishonoring Abram's wife Sarai and is therefore bringing herself under the divine curse. Verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the Hamas, in Hebrew, you heard that word before in the news? May the violence, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. I won't try to sustain that. I gave my servant to your embrace, terms of intimacy there, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you, Abram. Wow. So here, Sagar, notice this, she's going to Abram, isn't she? Instead of going to Hagar to settle the issue. Why? Because Sarai obviously feels that Abram has the authority in the home. He's the one who should be addressing this issue with his second wife, Hagar. Verse 6. Abram's on the couch watching hockey. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. (laughs) Abram does not accept responsibility. He does not accept the responsibility to go to talk to Hagar about Hagar's contempt for Sarai. He puts the ball back in Sarai's court. Sarai can do with Hagar as Sarai pleases. After all, Hagar is your maidservant, Hagar, not mine. What do we see here? We see here that Abram does not protect contemptuous Hagar from the wrath of Sarai. Even though, according to verse 3, Hagar, again, is now technically Abram's second wife. So Abram is sort of ditching on his responsibility here. And the end of verse 6 reports that Sarai did what? Dealt harshly with Hagar, and Hagar fled from Sarai. Again, pause here to note how this outsider Hagar, notice this carefully, how she is treated by the covenant people of God. The covenant people of God treat Hagar miserably. Yes, Hagar can certainly be blamed in this text for the contempt that she showed toward toward Sarai, but Sarai can certainly be blamed for her rough treatment of Hagar, and Abram can also be blamed for his poor treatment of Hagar and for the rather lazy permission that he gives to Sarai to go ahead and treat Hagar horribly. What a mess! The verb in verse 6 that we translate into English as dealt harshly. There's all sorts of interesting things in the Hebrew here. So Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar. That's the same Hebrew verb that shows up in Genesis 15:13 and is going to show up again in Exodus chapter 1, where in both places it's used to describe the people of Egypt dealing harshly with the Hebrew people during the Exodus. In the Exodus, Egypt afflicts and oppresses Israel. But here in Genesis 16, 
we notice it's Israel in Sarai and Abram who are afflicting and oppressing an Egyptian named Hagar. And so poor is Sarai's treatment of Hagar that Hagar skips town. She gets out of there. Again, I have to emphasize Christian church people. We need to get this, all of us. The people of God in this passage, by their words and actions, have driven away an outsider to the covenant. There is an uncomfortable question being posed to us here, and the question I think is well put by Ian Duguid, who wonders if we as church folk can sometimes be like Sarai and Abram. Duguid asks this question, do we draw people toward Jesus Christ, or do we repel them? Are we an open door to the gospel or a barbed wire fence? And I think each of us would do well to take such a question before the Lord, not look at anybody else except for ourselves, and to do some real self-examination here. Do we draw people toward Jesus Christ or do we repel them? Are we an open door to the gospel or a barbed wire fence? Well, at the beginning this morning, I promised you, didn't I, that we would find ourselves knee-deep in the mess that Abram and Sarai have created because of their impatience with God, and we've been looking at the mess. But I also said and promised that the text would show us how God shines in goodness and in glory even in the midst of the messes that his human creatures make. Do you know him to be that way? And the goodness and glory of God really now comes to the fore as we move to verse 7 and what follows. Watch very carefully what happens now. What happens is simply that God bursts onto the scene in tender mercy toward the outsider, Hagar, whom the covenant people have driven away. Yes, Hagar had made her own mistake. Yes, Hagar had exuded contempt towards Sarai. But as Dale Ralph Davis has put it, God's grace doesn't dry up because we are stupid. Isn't that good news? God's grace doesn't dry up because we are stupid. God now comes seeking Hagar as she flees from Canaan. Verse 7. The angel of Yahweh found, found, notice that word, he's on, the, he's on the hunt, found Hagar by a spring of water. Springs are usually things in scripture that, that mean there's some life coming. Found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now because of this mention of the spring on the way to Shur, we can make an educated guess that Hagar was heading back to Egypt. And now here she's about 70 miles away already from Sarai and Abram, pregnant, traveling on foot, alone in territory that was not very hospitable. Verse 8, the angel of Yahweh says to her, listen to what he says, it's blessed. 
Hagar, servant of Sarai. There's the blessing. We'll come back to that in a minute. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Notice that the angel, by the words he uses in his question, shows us clearly that God is 100% aware of the details of Hagar's life, even though Hagar lives technically as an outsider to the covenant. Notice this. Before Hagar opens her mouth to speak, the angel already knows her name and uses her name as he addresses her in great contrast to the covenant people, Sarai and Abram, who had not used Hagar's name once. And the angel also knows Hagar's position, that she is a servant. And further, the angel also knows the name of Hagar's mistress, who is Sarai. As Victor Hamilton says, the impression given by the angel's mention of all these details is that the whole episode is under Yahweh's control and vigilance. Yes? Where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar said, first thing she says in the whole narrative, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, Oh, I understand, Hagar. Be well in your flight. It was a warranted action that you took fleeing like this. Godspeed as you make your way back to Egypt. Everybody's looking at me funny. Of course, that's not what the text says. Even though some of us may have desired a response like that from the angel. What the angel actually says here shocks us a little bit, doesn't it? He says to Hagar, who's fleeing from Sarai, because of Sarai's harsh treatment of her, he says to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Really? After the harsh treatment that Hagar received at the hands of Sarai, she's supposed to go back to Sarai. Yes. And I think there are a couple of things going on here with the angel's command to Hagar to go back. First of all, remember that in verse 4, we said that the word rendered contempt, that contempt that was shown by Hagar towards Sarai, it's the same Hebrew word found in Genesis 12:3, where it's rendered dishonor. The person who dishonors you, Abram, I will curse, Yahweh had said. Hagar had dishonored Abram's wife Sarai, and because of that, now there was a potential divine curse hanging over Hagar's head. And so the angel wants her to go back to Sarai now to make things right. Hagar needs, if I can use the term, to woman up and play her part in resolving this matter face-to-face with Sarai. Secondly, I think the angel commands Hagar to go back to Sarai here for Hagar's own safety. For her own well-being. After all, Hagar is pregnant. She is alone in harsh wilderness, fleeing toward Egypt. To go back to Sarai, sure, it may mean further mistreatment at first. 
But at least Hagar will not be jeopardizing the baby like this out in the wilderness. It'll be in Hagar's best interest and the baby's best interest to return to the relative safety, the relative safety of Sarai and Abram and their home. It's a tough verse, no question, but I think those things might be going on here. Now in verses 10 through 12, we then have the angel of the Lord. Notice he makes a very specific promise to Hagar now. He says to Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, doesn't that promise to Hagar sound an awful lot like the promise that God made earlier to Abram? And further, notice this, doesn't this sound like it's God himself here? God himself speaking to Hagar, even though throughout verses 7 to 10, the text says that it's the angel of the Lord who's been speaking to her. Doesn't it sound like God himself? Probably we are to understand in this passage that the angel of the Lord and the Lord himself are one and the same. This is, in fact, the Lord speaking to Hagar here. Victor Hamilton, again, is helpful. He says, it's clear that the angel of Yahweh is a visible manifestation, either in human form or in fiery form, of Yahweh that is essentially indistinguishable from Yahweh himself. So then, if that's true, it would be entirely appropriate for us to say, as we look at the text, verse 7, God found Hagar by the spring of water. Verse 8, God questioned Hagar. Verse 9, God commanded Hagar to go back to Sarai. Verse 10, God makes the promise of numerous offspring to Hagar, And then in verse 11, God reveals the gender of the baby who's growing in Hagar's womb. It'll be a boy. And Hagar is to name the boy Ishmael, which means, very importantly, God hears. God says, you shall call his name Ishmael, God hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now later in the biblical story, God will hear the cries of his people being afflicted under the thumb of the Egyptians during the Exodus years. But at this point, God has heard the cry of an Egyptian named Hagar being afflicted by God's people. Verse 12, God reveals the life pattern that will characterize Ishmael. Imagine this at the the birth announcement of your child. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his Kinsman. Now, there's nothing very positive here in God's description of Ishmael. To describe Ishmael as a wild donkey of a man indicates that Ishmael's going to be a guy who is at home in the wilderness. He'll be sort of an untamable kind of a cat who loves his freedom more than he loves social constraints. 
And for God to say that Ishmael's hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him means that blows will come from Ishmael himself and he will receive blows. There will be a contentiousness or a conflict when Ishmael is around. Verse 13. So Hagar called the name of the Lord. She's naming the Lord here. Very rare in scripture. Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy, the God of seeing, a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now verse 13 is notoriously difficult to to translate smoothly from Hebrew to English. I think the basic idea here is that Hagar is saying something like, I've now caught sight of the God who sees me. And when God sees a person, his seeing means he exercises care for that person, deliverance for that person. Like when God saw his people's affliction in Exodus 3, that seeing translated into his people's deliverance. Seeing for God is not just visual sight, It translates into loving action. And God has reached out in grace and love here, hasn't he, to Hagar. He's given her a son, and he's given her the promise of numerous offspring. Verse 14. Therefore the well where Hagar had had this encounter with God, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, which translated means the well of the living one who sees. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. Verses 15 and 16. Now note this really well. This is the end of the chapter. The chapter began, didn't it, with Sarai's plan. Sarai's plan. Sarai. Her name was prominent at the beginning of the chapter. Sarai, her plan to get a baby for herself through Abram and Hagar. And the question as we read verses 15 and 16 now is, where's Sarai? It's kind of like where's Waldo? But here it's where's Sarai, and we can't find her. She's not mentioned anywhere in the last verses of the chapter. Not once. Watch this. Verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael, to Abram. Now note well that in these last two verses of the chapter, the baby belongs to who? Abram and Hagar. But apparently not to Sarai, who had concocted this plan to begin with. It's like the text goes out of its way here to exclude Sarai from the birth announcement. What a mess for Sarai. What a debacle. And the name of the baby, Ishmael, God hears. The very name of the baby was a lesson and a half for Sarai and Abram. God hears. You know, Abram and Sarai, instead of being silent toward me while you planned and carried out this disastrous plan with Hagar, maybe 
You should have prayed to me and poured your hearts out to me, says the Lord, because God hears. Instead of ignoring the one who was to be the source of their child, instead of running their own faithless engineering to get a baby, Sarai and Abram should have talked to God. Why? Because God hears. So the name of this baby, Ishmael, God hears, would be a hard lesson, but a necessary lesson for Sarai and Abram. And it may also be a hard but necessary lesson for some of us today. Some of us, like Abram and Sarai, may be fed up with waiting on God. And right now we're already carrying out plans. Before you came to church today, you're already carrying out plans and strategies and calculations that ignore God. You've decided that God needs to be put on the shelf while you go ahead and figure all of it out yourself. I want to remind you from the word this morning that God hears. If you are in distress in your life, if you are anxious, if you are tempted to give up on faith, now is your time, your golden moment, to cry out to the God who hears and who sees, who knows what you need a whole lot better than you do. Psalm 69, verse 33, the Lord hears the needy, and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Psalm 34, 6. The poor man cried, and the Lord, what? Heard him, and saved him out of all his trouble. So my friend, will you be a doer of this word, even later this afternoon? Will you go home and get real with God on your face and cry out to him? 2,000 years ago, and then I'm done, 2,000 years ago, God listened to the travail of his human creatures, caught as they were in sin, death, and the devil's grip. One day, God came to Mary, as God had come to Hagar in the wilderness. And God said to Mary, by the angel Gabriel, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then, just as Hagar had been told she would have a son and that she should call him Ishmael, so Mary was told by the angel Gabriel that she would conceive a son and that Mary should call him Jesus. And just as Hagar had been told the reason for the name Ishmael, that he should be called Ishmael because the Lord had listened to Hagar's affliction, so Jesus' father Joseph was given the reason for the name Jesus. The reason they should name their child Jesus was because this child would save his people from their sins. And just as Hagar had been informed by God about the future achievements of her son Ishmael, that Ishmael would be a wild donkey of a man whose hand would be against everyone and their hand against him. So Mary was told about the future achievements of her child, Jesus. According to the angel Gabriel, 
Jesus would be called great. And he would be called the Son of the Most High. And God would give Jesus the throne of his human ancestor David to rule there forever with no end to his kingdom. Mary's baby boy, you need to understand this morning, would be massively and radically different than Hagar's baby boy. The difference between Hagar's child Ishmael and Mary's child Jesus is like the difference between a little droplet of water and the Atlantic Ocean. Jesus came to save people from their sins. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus came to do the will of him who sent him. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to die on the cross, to be raised to life, and thereby to render powerless, as Hebrew says, to render powerless the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus is like the Atlantic Ocean to Ishmael's teensy little drop of water. Ishmael came only to be a wild donkey of a man who would prove to be a threat to Abraham's lineage. Personally, I don't know about you, but I am thankful today that God has heard the inner cry of my life and has sent Jesus to find me in the wilderness. In his great mercy, God has sought this runaway slave. And in Jesus, he has saved me from my sins. And the living Jesus now sits with me and hears me and works with me in all my messes. I am thankful for Jesus who came in Abraham's lineage. Despite this hiccup in Genesis chapter 16, despite this mess that Abraham and his his wife had created, I wonder this morning if you know Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I do come and I pray for somebody sitting here today who has entered with us into the strange new world of the Bible and has been riveted by your spirit to the true story. I pray for someone here this morning, Lord, who has yet to surrender themselves and their lives to Jesus Christ. Lord, if you are calling and working on them, that they would take the step of obedience and run and flee to you. You are the only Savior sent by God. You are the risen Savior, crucified and risen. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would save someone here today, that your Holy Spirit would so to work that somebody here would be born again, sitting under your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And may we apply, as children of God, may we apply this text this week. If we are tempted to run ahead of you and be faithless, May we be arrested and stopped in our tracks by this word, and may we flee to you and cry out to you because you hear. In Jesus' name, amen.